Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hi there. Welcome, history friends and patrons, to the latest very large episode. You're listening to When Diplomacy Fails. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project. You're listening to an absolute whopper episode. Who in the podcasting world is able to release such detailed analyses of events that happened a century ago? Well, look no further than this podcast. And if you're wondering why, then it's because When Diplomacy Fails has such a wonderful fan base and is supported by people just like you. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're thinking, huh, what on earth is going on? Then you're not alone. But you might also be listening to this podcast right now and thinking, you know what? I've been a listener for several years and I really enjoy the content Zach puts out. If you're in that latter bracket of people, and there are a few of you, believe it or not, then you may well be wondering how you can support this podcast. First and foremost, and I say this all the time, the best way to support this podcast is to tell people about it. Don't just assume that people know because you know. They probably don't, because 
By and large, history podcasting is quite a small medium. We can't all be Dan Carlin, so for those of us that are not Dan Carlin, we rely on our lovely listeners to spread the word. But maybe you've told people already and you want to help yourself independently of other people. Well, the best way to do that will be to go over to patreon.com and support us for a small amount each month and in return get some really sweet goodies back. Everything from an hour of extra content each month to playing the delegation game to getting these episodes with the scripts and with no ads fully attached. Generally, I'd say something like, oh, and you'll get the episode a week earlier, but because these episodes are out several times a week, that doesn't really apply. Generally, though, by supporting at the $2 level, you get the episodes a week earlier, you get them with the scripts, and you get them free of ads. For $5, you will get that as well, but you'll also get an hour of extra content. Currently, we are burning our way through the Suez Crisis, an absolutely fascinating event in history and something which really doesn't get enough coverage in the podcasting discourse especially, but also in general discourse. People don't really know about it, and they should know about it, because especially considering how crazy Britain is doing things these days, this Suez Crisis reminds us that things were pretty crazy back in the day as well. So by all means, if you're interested in the Suez Crisis and events that happened in 1956, Loads of diplomacy, loads of intrigue, loads of scheming, etc, etc. Oh boy, it's really fascinating. But go and check that out by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Click on the link in the description below. You know the story by now. Of course, for $6 a month, so $1 more, you get all that, but you also get to play the delegation game. Which involves you designing an avatar, thinking of one up, and then sending him or her to Paris to take part in the negotiations that we're trying to bring about a better world, but... By the way, some people carry on, you can probably tell that they have ulterior motives. Either way, don't imagine that just because we're several weeks into this that no one's really playing the delegation game anymore or that no new people have signed up. We've gotten several new people signing up and we're around that 40 delegate mark. While some people are more active than others, and while, theoretically at least, there is an awful lot of work to do and it can get a bit overwhelming, there's an awful lot of fun to be had as well. I've seen people really get into this and I've also seen them scheme and talk to one another completely in character. So if nerding out about the Paris Peace Conference sounds like something you'd be interested in, please do go and check out the delegation game. Again, link in the description below. For $6 a month, you can play this very involved game and have a ball with people who are just as, if not more, nerdier about history than you. If that doesn't seem possible, trust me, trust me, it is. Okay, guys, without any further ado, I think I should just say welcome. Thanks so much for listening and for downloading or streaming. And yeah, enjoy. Between them, have 
You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 46. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 46. Let me tell you something. If you thought that episode looking at the last two weeks of February was involved, very large and a bit intense, but also quite good, then oh boy, you've come to the right place, because here we're looking at the first two weeks of March 1919, and as you can see by the length of this guy, we're going into even more detail than before. As I've said, our coverage is provided for by the minutes of these Council of Ten meetings, which are freely available online thanks to the Foreign Relations of the United States, or FRUCE papers, as I've called them. We also bolster our coverage with the opinions of eyewitnesses, so usual suspects like Harold Nicholson and Edward House, to bring you a very varied and very eventful picture. By the end of our coverage, we will have returned to Paris the Big Three will have been reunited at long last, and the next phase of the Paris Peace Conference would be set to begin. Until that happened, though, and until things got a little bit tidier, but not too much tidier, arguments and debates, both familiar and brand new, lurked in the background, waiting to be addressed. So in this massive instalment, let's see how they all got on a century ago, as I take you all to the 1st of March, 1919. Edward House opened his diary on the 1st of March 1919 with a revealing note on an important development. This day, the 1st of March, was the first occasion since his attempted assassination that George Clemenceau had been able to preside as President of the Council of Ten. But House believed that he was able to note a difference in the man's presence and energy, saying as much in his diary that evening. We had an interesting session at the Quai d'Orsay, for the reason that Clemenceau presided for the first time since he was shot. I notice a marked difference in him as a presiding officer, now that he's trying to speed up our work. We finished in something like an hour. In ordinary times, we'd have, in ordinary times, we would have been at it all afternoon and perhaps carried the work over for another day. I was delighted at being able to postpone again the question of reparation, damage, cost of the war, or whatever term is to be applied to that question. At my suggestion, the committee on this question agreed to disagree and to pass it up to the Committee of Ten. I did this in order that the Committee on the Amount of Reparations might go ahead with this work, unhampered by the other committee, which indeed should never have been formed. The matter is now postponed until after the President arrives, and I think there will be no difficulty in postponing it until after the peace terms have been offered to Germany, and then it will die a natural death. If this question had not been finessed out of being, it might have caused serious differences in our councils. 
This was interesting input from House, as he declares his belief to do away with the reparations committee, and sees it as disruptive and a troublesome instrument rather than a necessary evil for some of the Allies. This is one of the few occasions where I agree with House's judgement, largely because the notes for the 1st of March are as tedious as they are confusing. Seriously, nobody seemed to have any idea what they wanted, or where reparations were really going to go to, to the extent that Clemenceau had to urge the attendees present to present only one issue for discussion at a time. House was correct as well in that the reparations question was postponed until the 15th of March. At that point, within a fortnight, it was believed that a decision could be made and presented then to the Big Five from that committee. Yet House did not take down in his diary the fact that, if anything, reparations as a question had become far more convoluted, thanks to the creation of a financial and an economic commission. These two commissions were supposed to take the pressure off of the Supreme Economic Council, which, remember, had been established in mid-February to tackle a whole range of economic questions, ranging from the delivery of food to the blockade and, originally, to reparations. The creation of these two committees or commissions, depending on what people felt like when they wanted to talk about them, it meant that the Supreme Economic Council could take something of a breather, but it also meant that these two new bodies were now in play and that they would have to be staffed. If you are unsure about what responsibilities would fall to each of these commissions, so the Economic or Financial Commission, then you're not alone. What was the real difference between the Financial Commission and the Economic Commission? Didn't they have virtually the same meaning? Well, not exactly, though by the end of the discussion on the 1st of March, even the stenographers couldn't be sure of what commission was being talked about, with Economic popping up several times in brackets where the Financial Commission was being talked about. If the Allied leaders had lost the stenographer during their discussions, then it's hardly surprising they should lose one another. It was after this meeting that House had written in his diary about the relative unimportance of these two commissions existing at all, since it took away from the deliberations of the Council of Ten. House, within the minutes, is the most consistent opponent of the idea that a figure for reparations had to be set before the armistice could be replaced with preliminary peace arrangements. Louis Klotz was the French finance minister during the First World War and was of the opinion that, in the case of reparations, it would be impossible for the Commission to apportion among the interested Allied and Associated Powers the total sum to be paid by Germany unless a ruling was obtained as to the interpretation to be given to the word reparation. That is to say, whether damage suffered by private individuals alone should be included or whether state losses and war costs should also be taken into account. There was some vagueness on the issue of how wide-ranging the definition of reparations should be. Klotz said this depended on the decisions made in subsequent days, and House argued that arriving at a figure was not important at this stage, and making the preliminary terms of the peace was more important. Two different types of reparations required two different commissions, and therefore two different documents, which would be presented to the Council of Ten on the 15th of March. At least according to the plan. But you're probably wondering, as was I, what's the difference between financial and economic reparations? Well, broadly speaking, financial reparations meant money, and economic reparations meant everything else that Germany could potentially give. But there was, of course, bound to be some overlap, particularly if, as it was feared, Germany's currency couldn't take the strain of the Allied bills. The 3rd of March saw everyone gather on a Monday, having taken the previous day off since the second was a Sunday, for this Supreme War Council meeting, the first of many over the next fortnight. 
Since their council was military, so were their discussions, and the conversation inevitably went to the question of Germany's military capabilities. Marshal Ferdinand Foch led the way, which brought its own dangers, as he was considerably more hardline than any of the other Allied figures where the issue of Germany was concerned. I have the honour, Foch said, to forward herewith the regulations concerning the definitive military and aerial statutes of Germany. The document which followed listed these terms, which we don't need to note in full at this time, but which we should look at some aspects of. Perhaps the most important of these aspects was the declared size of Germany's army, which would be no larger than 200,000. At least it was believed to be this size at this stage. Furthermore, a certain obsession is communicated about Germany's army staffs, which were allowed to include no more than 9,000 officers, and none in the Air Force. A committee of control would be established by the Allies to oversee this transformation of the German armed forces, and after a short while, these responsibilities would be taken up by the League of Nations. Foch expressed a sense of urgency in his presentation. Time was certainly of the essence, because the Allies would only realistically be in a position to impose these terms for as long as they enjoyed military superiority, or, as Foch said, The present rate of demobilisation in the Allied armies required that the discussion with the Germans should not be delayed after the 1st of April. The Allies could impose their will on Germany until that date. If it were in a position to impose their will on Germany after that date, the whole plan of demobilisation would have to be altered. I, therefore, beg the Council to agree upon the terms early enough to allow of a meeting with the Germans by the 20th of March. I consider that the period between that date and the 1st of April would not be too long for the discussion that would ensue with the Germans. Balfour responded to this weighted statement, evidently dissatisfied with it. In his mind, there had never been any agreement about the final date for presenting the terms to Germany. No, Balfour said, there was another reason why all these procedures were being hurried along by the military. The military were attempting to force the Allied civilian leaders into making decisions regarding restrictions upon Germany now so that they could avoid any possibility for negotiations taking place. Balfour said, I would like to inquire whether the Council had ever laid down the principle that the terms of peace were to be ready by the 1st of April. I have had no recollection of such a decision. The military delegates, however, appeared to have assumed that there was some such undertaking. They had, it seemed, so ordered demobilization as to fit in with this plan. In effect, they wished to force the Council to settle peace by that date, under pain of not being able to enforce their will upon the enemy. This was equivalent to holding a pistol at the head of the Council. If this were so, President Wilson would only have four days after his return to examine the conditions and to agree to them. This policy is a complete novelty to me. Interestingly, Balfour also objected to the idea that Germany's forces would be permanently set at the indicated limits. This, to the British Foreign Secretary, was unfeasible in the forever term and would only facilitate hostility towards the peace. Harsh limits upon Germany's armed forces would be applied, but it would also be let known that these terms would not apply forever so that a sense of hopelessness and humiliation might be avoided. Balfour expressed the idea that It would not do to say to the Germans, here are the aerial terms to last a short time, naval terms to endure for perhaps a generation, and military terms to last until the Day of Judgment. But Clemenceau was unsurprisingly very uneasy about talk like this. He insisted that the terms should be final, to which Balfour proposed a solution. That, 
The limitation on German armaments, whether military or naval or aerial, shall last until Germany has fulfilled all the obligations imposed upon her by the peace terms, and thereafter for as long as, and with such modifications as, the League of Nations may determine. In other words, Germany would have to pay off its hypothetical reparations bills, accede to the creation of new states in the East, relinquish its colonies and any other things that the Allies might demand in the peace treaty, before her armed forces could be restored, and even then, the League would be strictly supervising their proposed rearmaments. Would this be acceptable to France? Clemenceau said no, insisting that This did not dispose of the seriousness of the question. Naval powers had means of defending themselves, which were not open to land powers. I am not content to tell Germany to limit her forces until peace terms were fulfilled, and to leave the future at the mercy of events. At this point, something odd occurred as an argument over semantics began. What had been meant by final peace terms when one spoke of Germany? Well, Balfour added his two cents to this question. The word final, I thought, could not be held to convey the meaning of perpetuity. It had not been so interpreted by the naval authorities and by the aviation authorities. The naval terms, requiring a limitation of forces until certain undertakings had been carried out, were final terms, but not terms laid down to last forever. Clemenceau refused to accept this interpretation of the term forever. Much like my delegates in the delegation game had some issue defining precisely what abstain meant, a century ago, the leading lights of the Allied nations spent several minutes arguing over whether final really meant final and never-ending, or whether it simply meant final in a more general sense. The British insisted that it meant final in a more general sense, while the French insisted that it literally meant forever, and Clemenceau also argued, somewhat prophetically, that... President Wilson in this very room had declared that Germany must be disarmed. President Wilson did not say that Germany must be temporarily disarmed. Other countries might be content with transistory naval terms. I myself am not prepared to sign an invitation to Germany to prepare for another attack by land after an interval of 3, 10 or even 40 years. I would not be prepared to sign a peace of that character. How would the Allies manage to hammer out a lasting peace over Germany if they couldn't even agree what final meant? In House's mind, they could not hammer this peace out. He wrote that evening on the 3rd of March in his diary, expressing his immense frustration and disappointment with those he had been forced to work with, noting at the same time how much he felt the absence of Woodrow Wilson, and he was likely not the only one. House wrote, It is now evident that the peace will not be such a peace as I had hoped, or one which this terrible upheaval might have brought about. There are many causes why it will not be the one. There is scarcely a man here in authority outside the President who has a full and detached understanding of the situation and the capacity to settle the big and infinite number of problems before us. The President himself lacks a certain executive quality which, in some measure, unfits him for this supreme task. Of those in high authority... Balfour comes nearer seeing what the situation demands than any other, but he lacks initiative and a decision to such a degree that he is hopelessly entangled in the mesh. Besides this, he seems to care but little what happens. He seldom or never puts forth the force and enthusiasm necessary to carry things through. The others are largely controlled by prejudice and by selfishness. They are too wrapped up in their own affairs to see beyond national boundaries. I dislike to sit and have forced upon us such a peace as we are facing, 
We will get something out of it in the way of a League of Nations, but even that is an imperfect instrument from my point of view. All our commissioners, experts and economists tell of the same impasse and come to me almost hourly for consultation and advice. No one can ever know how hard-pressed I have been during the last months, or how every waking moment has been occupied. The situations are many in number, and both varied and complex in character. It is Archangel and Murmansk at one moment, the left bank of the Rhine the next, Asia Minor, the African colonies, the Chinese-Japanese difficulties, the economic situation as to raw materials, the food situation as to how it affects the various countries of Europe, enemy and neutral, and the financial situation as it relates to the United States and the Allies. These are some of the many questions which are constantly brought to me. I would not complain or feel discouraged if there were a more unselfish spirit manifested by those with whom I have had to deal, or if they would approach the problems in a broader light. Before wrapping up for the evening, it was decided to postpone the trickier question of what final meant until Thursday, that is, the 6th of March. Then the Council of Ten approved the delivery of German soldiers to Latvia, a quiet reminder of the unfolding situation there, which we examined during our Freikorps European Tour episode. Fortunately for House's nerves, he found that when he met privately with Clemenceau the next day on the 4th of March, alongside Balfour, he was able to get a great deal done. House noted that Clemenceau was very frightened, thanks to the picture he had painted about Germany slipping into Bolshevism. But he also noted that Balfour and Clemenceau committed to work quickly through their to-do lists, so that all would be ready by the time Wilson returned. Interestingly, House also made a note of some other work that they did, where they attempted to plan for the future of the conference. House's observations were especially interesting because of how completely wrong they turned out to be. At this point, House thought that they'd be able to invite the Germans to Versailles on the 20th of March, and once they arrived, a committee would present the then-agreed terms of the treaty to the German plenipotentiaries. The Germans would receive the terms, they would return to Berlin to consult with their government, and they would return to Versailles then to sign on the dotted line. Actually, to be fair to House, this process is sort of what happened, except that he got it wrong by about two months. The Germans arrived in late April, in real life, they deliberated with the Weimar government over the course of June, and then of course they returned on the 28th to sign on the dotted line. House expressed his concern at the whole conference being clogged with needless speeches and pontificating if the Allies simply met the German delegation as a whole, rather than appoint a committee. It has to be remembered, House wrote, that we are not holding a peace conference at present, but merely a conference between the Allies and ourselves for the purpose of agreeing upon terms to offer Germany at the peace conference to be held later. I told Clemenceau that if we did not adopt some such method, there would be an interminable lot of speeches and confusion. If the Germans were invited into a general peace conference for discussion, the President would speak, Lloyd George would speak, Orlando undoubtedly would wish to tell his people in Italy what he thought of the matter, Venizelos and nearly every other head of a delegation would demand a hearing, and he, Clemenceau, would want to tell the people of France what he thought about it. Clemenceau held up his hands and said, No, not I, not I. Nevertheless, he and Balfour agreed that the method which I proposed should be carried out, because it was the most expedient thing to do. Several metres from where House was spending his 4th of March, Harold Nicholson was busy working for the Greek committee, which had been tasked with finding some agreeable solution to the laundry list of claims made by Premier Venizelos on all lands neighbouring Greece, where even a lick of the language might be spoken or trace of the culture found. 
In our examination of Nicholson's work in episode 40, we saw just how busy he was, and he had begun to come strongly down on the side of anti-Italian sentiment. From his diary, the Italians appear bitter, selfish and unhelpful at the best of times, and in the Council of Ten, matters were not much better. The Council of Ten opened on the 5th of March to discuss the issue of representation once again, as the Belgians had apparently petitioned to have a seat on the Supreme Council so that they could have input on the preliminary peace terms. But this idea, presented by the French, was predictably opposed by the Anglo-Americans, who feared what might occur if the Belgians were given a seat on the Supreme Council. So, remember, the Supreme Council is basically the Council of Ten, so the Belgians were asking an awful lot. The compromise reached was that when Belgium was being directly discussed, Belgian representatives would be invited to attend in the Council of Ten, and attentions then turned to the affair which would dominate the day's discussions, Italian rights and the infringement of these rights by Serbia, in a lesser-known settlement called Ljubljana. Ljubljana is also known in the German as Leibach, or in the English Ljubljana, but it is more commonly known today as the Slovenian capital of Ljubljana. But because the Italian version is easier to spell and say, I'm going to go with that, so apologies to my Slovenian listeners, and apologies to everyone for probably messing up each and every one of those pronunciations. Anyway, Allied attentions were drawn to the future Slovenian capital thanks to two major concerns. The first concern was presented by Herbert Hoover, who presented a rousing speech on starvation and food shortages within the Austro-Hungarian Empire's former lands, and he urged Allied action. The second concern was then highlighted by the Italians, when Sonino explained, that is, Sidney Sonino, the Italian foreign minister, he explained what had happened in Ljubljana between the Italians and some Serbian thugs. Sonino detailed an event whereby a train carrying Italian soldiers, emblazoned with Italian flags, had stopped in Ljubljana, only to be set upon by Serbian ruffians. The soldiers were injured, their flags were burned, and the entire experience had been deeply humiliating for Italian sensibilities. The Allies wanted to use the railway at Ljubljana to facilitate the delivery of food across the former Austro-Hungarian territories. But the Italians would not accede to this plan because they did not want to relinquish their control over this pocket of territory and also because they suspected, quite correctly, that the Allies would return control of Ljubljana to Yugoslavia once their delivery plan had been carried out. Herein was the tension. For strategic reasons and for sake of receiving satisfaction from Serbia for the offence, Italian statesmen felt incapable of handing Ljubljana over to the Allies. For humanitarian reasons, Though, the Allies believed they needed Ljubljana to undertake the most effective delivery of food, otherwise the entire operation would be threatened and delayed, while people died in their thousands. This was the crux of the problem, and for the remainder of the meeting, the Allies danced around it, as barely veiled threats and protests were lobbied in various directions, and the Italian backs were against the wall. But was there any easy solution? And who was in the wrong? Sidney Sonino explained Italy's position, noting, Italy could not allow a mandate to be given to any one man to override all national services, all political considerations, all military necessities, to establish complete priority for one kind of traffic, and to employ agents of all nationalities. Monsieur Silvio Crespi had given some details about the Ljubljana incident. Italy had done all it could to mitigate the consequences of the insult received. Italy had shown the greatest forbearance and had agreed to accept the solution proposed by Mr. Butler. 
I do not yet know what the results of Italy's effort at reconciliation will be. Before knowing it, I am asked to hand over the whole control to a single director. I cannot do this. Out of the Allies, Italy was best positioned to deliver food to relieve Austria and the Balkans. Italian statesmen insisted that they were continuing to do this, but that certain exceptions were made in the case of Ljubljana, owing to the Serbian insult. This did not, however, mean that foodstuffs were being blocked from entering the needy areas altogether. Silvio Crespi made the important point that There is some misunderstanding. German Austria was being revictualled via the Brenner and not via Ljubljana. Italy entirely agreed with the sentiment just expressed and had always done its utmost to serve the same ends. I wish to draw attention of the Council to the very sensitive condition of Italian public opinion since the events at Ljubljana. House had emphasised the importance of delivering food promptly to Austria for other reasons, politics, saying... The question should be settled either at once or on the following day. All reports indicated that the sending of food to German Austria would weigh heavily on the scale when German Austrians came to decide whether or not they would throw their lot in with Germany. This was the political aspect of the case. So the two arguments had been made. The Allies wanted Italy to end all blockades of the area because it hampered the Allied delivery of food. The Italians resisted calls to lift the blockade because food was being delivered through another route, because there was considerable apprehension over empowering a single Allied Relief Commission to commandeer Italy's railways and resources in the sensitive region, and because the urgency was not as intense as the Allies claimed. If, Sonino said, matters really had been so urgent, then Italian requests to the Allies for credit, which would have helped them deliver supplies to Austria, would not have taken over three weeks to be approved. The Italians resented Allied interference in the matter, clearly, because the Balkans and the future relationship with the Serbs was already proving problematic as issues for them. Furthermore, there was a sense that the Allies were perpetrating some selective outrage where food shortages in the former Habsburg lands were concerned. Italy had already done more than its fair share, and it had a right to defend itself. It was sensible to postpone the issue, because everyone was getting a bit sweaty over the debate, particularly the Italians, who were sensing that they were fighting this battle alone, and that it was making them look bad. The issue certainly would have been postponed, and the 5th of March meeting would surely have moved on to other matters, but for Lord Robert Cecil's interjection. Cecil said, I have no wish to make any statement affecting policy, but I would like to impress upon Baron Sonino the extreme urgency of sending food to Austria, and of getting the railways into working order for that purpose. I thought it is impossible to exaggerate the gravity of the situation. People are dying of hunger, not only in German Austria, but in Bohemia. If this state of things continued, it would cause disaster, not only in the countries directly affected, but throughout Europe. Unless the Allies were ready to put the transportation of food on a business footing, the direst consequences would result in all the Allied countries. All that was proposed was that a certain quantity of rolling stock should be earmarked and given priority over other means of transport. Even the Germans had done as much for the civilian population of Belgium, though they were in a state of war with that population. Even if the Council could not see its way to accept the proposal at once, I suggest that it should express general approval and remit the means of execution to the Supreme Economic Council. This represented a considerable escalation in rhetoric. Even the Germans had supplied Belgium with food while occupying her. This seemed to hint that the Italians were acting more beastly towards the Serbs than the Germans had acted towards the Belgians, 
a highly provocative thing to even insinuate. The story was not so much Italian outrage at this tangent from Cecil, but of everyone suddenly deciding to change their mind about postponing the discussion of the whole issue. It was so urgent and lives were on the line, so Secretary Strait Robert Lansing said that it should be discussed as early as possible the next day. Baron Sinino said that he regretted Mr. Lansing's change of mind. The Italian delegation must have an opportunity of consulting Rome. The proposal, as it stood, put all the guilt on Italy, and by implication it exonerated the Serbs from responsibility for the unjustifiable insult suffered by Italy. He requested that the resumption of the discussion be delayed until Friday. Each delegation could make a firm commitment that a solution of the problem would be found on that day. There was, of course, another possible solution, namely that the military occupation of Ljubljana should go ahead. This could be done at any moment, but the Italian government did not wish to proceed to that extremity by itself. If talking with Rome was the only reason for delaying by several days, then the British Admiral Lord Milner asked whether the Italian delegation would not be able to communicate by telephone with Rome. Silvio Crespi explained that they did have a phone, but that it wasn't so simple, because Rome also had to communicate with Trieste. To this technical detail, Lord Milner observed that people were dying for want of food, but Crespi fired back that this was an exaggeration. In any case, the situation was governed by the absence of sufficient railway carriages, rather than railway lines. Even the opening of ten lines of railway wouldn't improve matters unless rolling stock could be found. Ratcheting up the tension still further, Clemenceau then said that In my view, the disquieting feature of the discussion was that, to safeguard Italian susceptibilities, a delay was being agreed to, which might endanger the whole European situation and compromise the results of the war. I quite understand national susceptibilities, but in certain circumstances they must not be given precedence over other considerations. Baron Sonino was well aware that France had suppressed her feelings on more than one occasion, notably in relation to certain naval occurrences in the Adriatic. Baron Sanino, to save Italian susceptibilities, wished the discussion postponed until Friday. If on Friday the Yugoslavs had not given satisfaction to Italian sentiment, what was to happen? France was ready to advise the Yugoslavs, and had already done so to be as conciliatory as possible. I feel that an urgent decision should not be postponed for a question of sentiment. This was quite a rebuke from Clemenceau, and it is surprising considering his normally polite treatment even of the Italians. Sonino was quick to defend Italy's case, of course, claiming that the delay over the discussion was not due to national sentiment, but logistics. Silvio Crespi bulked up Sonino's case by reading a letter from the Czech foreign minister, Edward Benesch, who had written that the situation was stable and not nearly so bleak in the area as the Allies claimed. Food was getting through, and this was bound to increase as Europe was pieced back together. Balfour then attempted to climb down from the intransigent position set by Cecil when he said that so long as Italy commits to solve the Ljubljana blockade issue satisfactorily by Friday the 7th of March, as in two days, then he would accept a postponement of the debate. The two Italian delegates would certainly have breathed a sigh of relief. Now they were off the hook and could coordinate a response with Rome. So why had so much pressure been piled onto Italy in the first place? Why the sudden concern for starving citizens, when thousands were suffering from that very affliction in Germany at that very moment? A large part of the reason for this focus on Italy was the declared Allied mission to get through the long list of terms on the agenda for the next week. 
if Italy would simply agree to Herbert Hoover's plan, which imagined extensive Allied control over sensitive Allied railway lines, which imagined extensive Allied control over sensitive Italian railway lines, and a reduction in direct Italian influence in still more sensitive border regions, then the Allies could move swiftly onto the next item on the agenda. Now, though, the Allies would be forced to return to this issue in two days' time, and matters would be further delayed. Another factor is that this had not been planned, but judging by the minutes, several figures decided on a whim to work against the Italian position, which created an immensely tense atmosphere which had never been expected at the beginning of the day. The Italians needn't have worried too much, though, because the next case, which was made on the long afternoon of the 5th of March, was one which would certainly take some more of the shine off the Serbian position. It was time for a representative of the King of Montenegro to speak. Since virtually the moment of the armistice, Serbian forces had moved across the Balkans and systematically occupied several of the states which had once formed parts of the Habsburg Empire. These states included Croatia and Slovenia, but also Montenegro, that mountainous kingdom of 200,000 citizens, which captured the imagination and wonder of the Allies. Its king, Nicola, had been in Paris since the war effectively destroyed his country, and he had not liked what he had seen from the Serbs. Serbia's Karadjordjevich dynasty looked set to replace his own dynasty in Montenegro by instituting a common monarchy across the entirety of the Balkans, so it seemed. We'll recall that on the 1st of December 1918, the Kingdom of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes had been proclaimed. But where did this leave Montenegro? It wasn't even mentioned in the name. Well, the King of Montenegro was coming to discover that this new kingdom of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes had reduced Montenegro and King Nicola of Montenegro to essentially a constituent part. This was far from good enough for the King of Montenegro, and notwithstanding the small size of his country, his case was scheduled to be heard on the 5th of March. One of King Nicola's esteemed generals read out a long speech in his name, and parts of it are worth quoting in full. The general, General Vozvenovich, said... As a legitimate government recognised by the Allies, the royal government of Montenegro considers that it has claims upon your goodwill. Can you forget that it was its head who, from the very beginning, wished to fight side by side with the Entente? But despite its heavy sacrifices and cruel sufferings during the war, Montenegro is the only one of your allies, and even of your enemies, against whom the doors of the conference had been closed. The royal government of Montenegro has not been asked to name a representative for the seat reserved for it, because in your opinion, the position of our country required explanation. May we be permitted to say that its position is neither obscure nor confused. A perfidious propaganda has tried to make you believe that our country as a whole wished to be absorbed by the Serbs, and Serbia has tried to do this by one audacious and forcible coup. But Montenegro opposed this arbitrary and imprudent annexation. She cried aloud despite the gag. Her defenceless hands smote the fresh oppressors still armed with weapons you had given them against a common enemy. That is the outline of what occurred. However telling it may be, permit us to add some more details thereto. In October 1918, after the evacuation of Albania by Austrian troops, the Eastern Army advanced towards Montenegro, and the Serbian troops which formed part thereof rapidly poured over our territory. Our compatriots, glad to meet men of their race, greeted them joyfully, their welcome, however, met with no response. The Serbs immediately assumed the attitude of conquerors, overthrowing established institutions and establishing their own authority by means of intimidation and bribery. They were dealing with a starving population, whose consciences it was not hard to corrupt. 
The Serbian government considered that the time had come for the annexation it had premeditated. Out of 50 of the king's former ministers, though, only two voted against him. Not a single officer or priest voted for the abolition of the Montenegrin dynasty. Out of 56 deputies elected by the people to the Parliament of 1914, only five declared against King Nicholas I of Montenegro. Events had developed too far and too rapidly. Such shameless juggling with a regularly established kingdom could not be accepted by an intelligent population proud of its history and traditions and conscious of its individuality and need for liberty. Discontent rapidly developed into indignation, which indignation manifested itself both against the Serbian troops and the Montenegrins in the pay of Serbia. In Paris, the royal government protested to the Allies against the violence done to our country, against this contempt of all our rights. Our complaint has hitherto met with no response. The Serbs are still in Montenegro, pursuing their aims by armed force. Martyrs fall each day, but it has at any rate been proved before the whole world that the will of Montenegro has not been freely manifested. We most earnestly desire that our protests shall not be misinterpreted. We will not permit Montenegro to become a Serbian province and be ruled by princes neither of her own choice nor her own royal line. It affords us satisfaction to consider that our country has firmly resisted such brutal and humiliating annexation. We are conscious, however, of all that we owe to our race and our people. We will not set our faces against a confederation of the Yugoslav countries, the states constituting which league would retain full and complete autonomy. Thus, it is evident that we are merely claiming for Montenegro a right which is now recognised as legitimate for all people, that of self-determination. If this right is to be exercised, an end must be made to the rule of terror and despotism from which our country has suffered so much. After investigation by you, the Serbians must be asked to evacuate Montenegrin territory at once. Their gold and their bayonets must affect us no longer. It must be considered a tragedy that these genuine pleas from the Montenegrin king's representative went in vain. In the briefest of concluding statements, Clemenceau essentially thanked this general for delivering the above speech, addressing no parts of it, and the meeting was adjourned. Everyone had had a chance to hear Montenegro's plight, but it was highly unlikely that its tragic tale stuck with them all that much. The talk of that meeting then and afterwards remained Italy and the downturn in her relationship with the Allies. In the event, just to give you a bit of a spoiler, Montenegro would be abandoned by the Allies, and notwithstanding the sincerity and passion of this appeal, Montenegro became a constituent part of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. King Nicola would die in exile in Paris in 1921 at the age of 79, a broken and abandoned man, one of many individuals who slipped through the cracks of the otherwise well-intentioned Paris Peace Conference. The meeting of Thursday the 6th of March 1919 contained one very special returning guest, David Lloyd George. After his trip to fix the domestic situation in Britain, which we've pretty much just ignored because life is too short, Lloyd George returned to Paris eager to sink his teeth back into the morass of debates and issues then on the agenda, and he was destined to make his presence felt immediately. His day of return was occupied by the debate over what to do with the German army, a question which remained at the forefront of French minds. Marshal Foch was of the opinion that an annual rotation of 200,000 men would be sufficient to keep Germany low because she would lack an organised officer corps. But Lloyd George made it be known that he disagreed, since his plan would provide 2 million men to Germany within a decade. And, with or without an NCO staff, this was still a very large number of men. 
Foch's point was that Germany's rotating military, in other words training 200,000 men and rotating them out of the army each year, would create a class of poorly trained and inadequately led soldiers. But Lloyd George argued that the war left Germany with thousands of NCOs all eager for revenge. Foch responded that, Germany owed her great strength before the war to the large body of 120,000 professional non-commissioned officers who formed the backbone of the army. Under the proposed scheme, that backbone would be broken if Germany were now to be allowed to raise a permanent standing army consisting of even 40 or 50,000 men. That would mean practically 40 or 50,000 possible non-commissioned officers available for training large armies. No doubt, cadres at present existed, but these would daily lose their value if demobilised as proposed. This was a difference in vision, and we might assume that Lloyd George would defer to the more experienced military mind of Marshal Foch, but we'd be wrong there, as the Prime Minister drove home his point with considerable tenacity, perhaps making up for lost time as he did so. Lloyd George argued that Germany should not be permitted to maintain a bigger army than Great Britain possessed. Great Britain had no idea of having an army of four million men. Consequently, the regulations should lay down that Germany should not maintain an army bigger than Britain. It was useless to say that Germany would not have the cadres, for with millions of trained ex-officers and ex-non-commissioned officers burning with the desire to avenge their defeats, cadres would undoubtedly be raised somehow or another. I would therefore ask permission to make a suggestion, namely that an opportunity should be given to me to put a new proposal before the meeting. I suggest, therefore, that the debate on the military terms should be adjourned to enable me, on the morrow or the next day, to submit an alternative proposal, limiting the German army much more effectively than in the draft regulations now under consideration. Foch was likely taken aback by Lord George's opposition, especially since this method of controlling Germany's armed forces had already been mostly agreed upon by a military commission tasked with planning for the future of Germany's military. This may well have been the case, but as Lloyd George pointed out, the question of Germany's armed forces could evidently no longer be reduced to military-style debates. The extent of feeling regarding potential German revenge meant that this was also a political matter, so he needed to adjourn until Friday. Incredibly enough in this debate, Clemenceau actually agreed with Lloyd George, which must have been tough for Marshal Foch to swallow, and which effectively also doomed Foch's earlier position. The military clauses adopted by the Allies would reflect this input from Lloyd George. He would have his way in this case. The rest of the day of the 6th of March was taken up with the refining of the clauses to be presented on Germany's navy. So we don't have to go into these into detail, but suffice to say, Lloyd George also featured heavily in the deliberations on Germany's navy. The Prime Minister was plainly eager to make up for lost time by reminding everyone present just how powerful a voice he had. So we come to Friday the 7th of March. This was supposed to be the day that the Italian situation was addressed once more. After it had been postponed when everyone got a bit hot under the collar on the 5th of March, it was now time to hopefully reach some kind of solution. The Italians were supposed to have arrived at this solution. Now that Lloyd George was present to add his voice to the mix though, could the dynamic be expected to change? Indeed, much as he had done the day before, Lloyd George immediately weighed in on the debate. The solution which was proposed would send a commission to Ljubljana. This commission would gain at least some satisfaction and once it returned its verdict, the railway route would be reopened. Herbert Hoover was again loud in his recommendations that Italy should allow the delivery of food by this busy railway route straight away. So, with the tension beginning to rise once more, 
Lloyd George intervened with considerable effect, saying, The incident described by Monsieur Silvio Crespi was a very serious one. The powers could not permit the flag of a great allied country to be subjected to indignity. They were bound to do all they could to uphold one another's national honour. I think that the sending of the commission suggested by Monsieur Crespi would have a good effect. A telegram informing the Yugoslavs that a commission was to be sent would make it clear to them what the attitude of the powers was. Nevertheless, I do not think that in the meantime, populations in no way concerned in the incident should be starved, and I do not understand that it was so proposed. I think, therefore, that Mr. Hoover's proposal could be accepted and executed simultaneously with the appointment of the commission. I propose that a telegram appointing a commission of inquiry be sent at once, that the blockade be removed, and that Mr. Hoover's plans be put in operation as soon as the telegram has been sent. This wasn't acceptable to Monsieur Crespi, so Sonino proposed that the telegram sent to the Serbs to find out what happened to be reworded, to say something to the effect of, as soon as the commission is in place, Italy will end the blockade of the Ljubljana region. The wording was important, because by saying once the commission is in place, Italy will end the blockade, it would essentially show the Serbs that Italy was getting its own way. Clemenceau was sceptical about the modification, and the Italians then proceeded to argue with Hoover about how many trains went through the region. The Italians were certainly fearful about the potential damage to their national reputation they would suffer from if they were overruled in this very sensitive matter by the Council of Ten. Marshal Foch then interjected and asked whether the delivery of foodstuffs in such a sensitive but also militarised region might not be a job more suited to the military. Hoover argued that for his part, the Allied Relief Organisation had been doing all the work and that the military had done nothing to aid these people. Time was of the essence, food was urgently required and the relief organisations on the ground remained the best hope to alleviate the burden of starvation. An amendment to the Italian proposal was put forward by Lloyd George, worded in the following manner. When the commission has been appointed and the local authority of Ljubljana has been so informed, the Italian government will allow the transit via Ljubljana of such trains as may be necessary for revictualling purposes. This appeased the Italians and the local Serb government hunkering down in the Slovenian city. Sonino declared that this was the limits of the concessions he was willing to make. He did not wish to legitimise the Serbian insult by recognising whatever regime they had installed in the region, but he would permit this commission to begin appointing delegates. This would get the ball rolling and effectively solved the problem. In sum, then, Italy declared it would reopen the railways through Ljubljana, facilitating the easier transport of foodstuffs along that important line as soon as a commission had been appointed and announced its decisions to the Ljubljana government. It provided recognition of Italian grievances, placed Italian satisfaction ahead of other concerns, and represented a concession to the Serbs at the same time. With that chestnut pulled out of the fire, the Allies then moved on to Germany once more. The conversation over Germany echoed what had been decided the previous day, where Lloyd George had gotten his way regarding the composition of the German army. According to Lloyd George, will recall, it was more important to reduce the number of the German army size to a steady number rather than train 200,000 of mediocre new soldiers every year. Only by ensuring a small army resided in the country, and not by artificially hampering the German officer corps, could the Allies be guaranteed of a peaceful future. Lloyd George outlined the following details of the military, naval and aerial terms of peace with Germany. These draft terms, Lloyd George announced, should be based on the following principles. First, the German military, air and naval forces 
shall be raised entirely by volunteer service. Second, the minimum period of service for all ranks shall be 12 years with the colours. Third, the strength of the German Army and Air Force shall not exceed 200,000 men of all ranks, organised in not more than 15 divisions and 3 cavalry divisions. Fourth, the strength of the German Navy shall not exceed 15,000 men of all ranks and ratings. Adoption of these principles would represent Lloyd George actually getting his own way at the expense of the French general's opinions, and yet Clemenceau supported him. When Foch and other French generals weighed in again, Lloyd George replied firmly, spelling out his red lines. The question of principle must be decided in the Council of Ten itself. I, on behalf of Great Britain, would never sign any peace giving Germany an army of more than 200,000 men. I would never agree to an army raised in Germany by short conscript service. No general's opinion would shake my decision. This was a matter for governments to decide. I did not wish to say that I reject the advice of the generals. It was to avoid this that I had put forward this resolution. I decided for a long-service army as the only guarantee of a small army. I proposed this principle be accepted by the council, and that directions be given to the military advisers to prepare regulations in accordance with this principle. Clemenceau verbally assented to this, in the process taking the debate firmly out of the hands of his generals, saying... The case had been clearly put by Mr Lloyd George. I am also bound by his acceptance of these principles. The resolution would now be reported on by the military committee, who would of course remain free to express their own views. The decision would remain with the governments. That, it seemed, was that. Lloyd George would not budge on the question of the size of Germany's army, and without Clemenceau's support, the French general staff would not be able to argue their case to these civilian leaders. Clemenceau had insisted that the decision would remain with the governments, demonstrating his resolve even in the face of Foch's weighted voice. Incredibly enough, Lloyd George's perseverance in this matter represented the second of two victories for his policy, the first being the untangling of the Italian puzzle. The Council of Ten, if it had missed the British Prime Minister, undoubtedly felt his presence upon his return. Attentions were then turned to a lengthy discussion of the naval terms of the preliminary peace with Germany, which, mercifully, we don't need to get into at this time, before it adjourned for the day. Before we go into the second half of this episode, I need to just go and remind you guys, first and foremost, that this is a listener-supported podcast, and if you would like to support this podcast, the best way to do so is by going to Patreon right now. Seriously, it takes 10 seconds. Even if you're just interested in seeing what Patreon has to offer, maybe you've never actually visited the page before, maybe you've never gone close to clicking on the links in the description below, maybe the links don't work for you, in which case, whoops, because they should. Anyway, go to patreon.com, look at the different tiers on offer, and note the different benefits, the different perks that you could get. In return for doing that, you'd be not only helping to make history thrive, and you'd be sending your very hard-earned money my way, and I'd be super, super appreciative, but you'd also be getting some stuff. That's why I like Patreon, and that's why I like asking you guys to support, because it's not charity. You're genuinely getting some great stuff in return. And if you didn't have enough When Diplomacy Fails or Zach Twomley in your life, then, by all means, go and access that extra content. If you were to sign up now, you'd see that there's a pretty much large back catalogue of extra content there. Everything from Jan Sobiesi's biography series to Louis XIV's Arms and Armies to the first section of 1956 which looks at what happened after Stalin died and the Soviet Union tried to move on with consequences that led to revolts in Hungary and Poland. 
The second part of 1956 is the Suez Crisis, and we're already on episode 12 of that, I believe. So yes, plenty, plenty of content for you to sink your teeth into, and maybe you want a break from Versailles, and you want to delve into that aftermath time of the Korean War, which in itself deserves more focus and more attention. So there you go. That's me trying my very best to sell the Suez Crisis to you guys. And if you were to buy it, if you were to buy into this great deal we have going, I would be super appreciative, and you would be doing your part to make history thrive. Alrighty, guys, after this tiny little break, interrupted with a short song so that you're able to find your way next time, let's get back in to the story. Welcome back to the second half of episode 46. Considering the rather large size of it, I figured it was only right to split it up a little bit. Hopefully this makes it easier to find your place if you're coming back. Sometimes I understand pause buttons don't work super well. So yes, welcome. If you've forgotten what we've done so far already, then oh dear, perhaps you should get that checked out. But seriously, we're on the second week of March now. We've looked at the 1st to the 7th of March, 1919, and now we're looking at the 8th of March onwards. So starting with the 8th of March, 1919, déjà vu seemed present when the Council of Ten convened, because the Allies were forced to deal immediately with the consequences of their previous talks on the Italian position in Ljubljana. That's right, the Italian problem had not quite yet been solved. The Allied Commission did indeed proceed to the region the previous day, and to assuage Italian fears, the Council of Ten was told that it had issued a directive to the effect that a recurrence of similar incidents would immediately be followed by an inter-Allied military occupation of the localities where such incidents might occur, in accordance with the terms of Article 4 of the Armistice of 3rd of November 1918, combined with such other more stringent measures as the Commission may consider proper the policy of accepting no nonsense from the Serbian quarter, was something of a relief to the Italians, who could now believe that the Allies would not abandon them or condemn them where Serbia was concerned. This, mercifully enough, was the last word on Ljubljana. So the Council of Ten then talked about Belgium, and indicated that it was ready to consider a revision of the Treaty of 1839, which had enshrined neutrality into the policy of the Belgian state. Henceforth, 
it was determined that neutrality would not form an essential pillar of Belgian foreign policy, and that the Belgian government would be free to pursue whatever policy it liked. As the commission tasked with reaching a solution on Belgium stated, The general object of this revision is, in accordance with the aim of the League of Nations, to free Belgium from that limitation upon her sovereignty which was imposed on her by the Treaties of 1839, and in the interest both of Belgium and of general peace, to remove the dangers and disadvantages arriving from the said treaties. The Dutch would be invited to discuss this amendment to Belgian policy, and whatever decisions were made on Belgian borders and demands would be enshrined as part of the League of Nations. This represented an important change in Belgium's official policy line, which had been maintained, as stated, since the Treaty of 1839. Henceforth, Belgium was not neutral, according to a treaty, but it was free to decide on any policy that she liked. History tells us that this was akin to a disaster, because Belgium pursued a policy of close cooperation with France until 1936, when neutrality was pursued once more and at precisely the wrong time. The next issue concerned uneven representation on the Finance Commission and Economic Commission. We met these two commissions earlier in the show, and we learned that they had been created by the Allies to reach an easier decision on the reparations issue by splitting reparations up into two categories. The first, finance, dealt with the issue of money, and the second, economic, dealt with the other forms of reparation which Germany could offer. Both commissions inevitably overlapped, especially in their quest to determine precisely how much Germany would pay, what that payment would look like, and how much the Allied powers were entitled to. Today, the Allies were not discussing the responsibilities of these commissions, though, but their representation, that never-ending problem when you had so many commissions, committees and councils all in need of delegates. According to the Allies, the problem in the case of these commissions were that many of the belligerent small powers who had fought and lost so much in the war hadn't been granted representation due to the sharing of votes among five of the assembled minor powers. In this pool of more than 20 small powers, it was inevitable that some disagreements would take place, but both Georges Clemenceau and Lloyd George criticised in their turn the appearance of several Latin American delegates on these commissions, whereas the likes of Greece, Poland or Czechoslovakia were ignored. The reason for this mobilisation of Latin American diplomacy was down to previous agreements among these countries before the conference. Yet it was felt that this generous representation of Latin America was unfair because many had only gone as far as just breaking off relations with Germany. Only Brazil had actually made some effort to involve itself in the war. To combat this Latin American monopoly, it was ruled in the Supreme Council that the Finance and Economic Commission would rotate membership depending on what issues were being discussed. There was hardly any utility, for instance, in offering Chile a role in determining the future of Ottoman forces and the commission tasked with this mission was too important to leave unstaffed. Indecision loomed once again. It was then proposed that the small powers could have half votes to allow more of them to take part, but this headache-inducing idea was turned down. The Council of Ten concluded that it would make most sense for the great powers to simply appoint the small powers themselves. A more contentious issue then appeared on the agenda. Germany, it was said, was not upholding its side of the bargain and was proving stubborn when it came to handing over her fleet. Unless she handed over this fleet, it was said that Germany would not be entitled to food supplies from the Allies, since this fleet was to be tasked with transporting this foodstuffs into the country. As the armistice had originally stated, 
In order to assure the provisioning of Germany and the rest of Europe, the German government shall take all necessary steps to place the German merchant fleet for the duration of the armistice under the command and control of the Allied flags and the United States, who shall be assisted by a German delegate. This arrangement shall in no ways affect the final disposal of such vessels. The Supreme Economic Council was in charge of regulating and formulating the Allied policy towards Germany, at least insofar as these policies concerned economics, which so many did. The Supreme Economic Council representative, there to talk with the Council of Ten on the 8th of March, was the always busy Lord Robert Cecil, and he presented a long-form plan for dealing with Germany, including contingencies depending on whether she behaved or not. The idea was to import just enough food to the country to stop it from starving altogether, but to leave the blockade intact and still make the Germans feel like the losers. The issue of how the Germans would pay for this food then did the rounds, and the French made it plain that they felt that by giving the Germans food, they were giving away one of their most potent weapons. This prompted a response from Lloyd George, which is worth reciting here. Remember that while we quote Lloyd George in the first person, the minutes record him speaking in the third person, but I quote him in the first person because it feels more natural. For the sake of being completely transparent, I believe it's important I note that. In any case, the following extract is rather long, but it expresses better than any historian could how different the French and British attitudes towards delivering food to Germany had become, so I believe it's worth bringing to you guys. Anyway, Lloyd George said... I have been rather staggered by Marshal Foch's proposition that we were parting with a very great effective power by exerting pressure on Germany. The difficulty was, however, more apparent than real, for the Allies were not in reality parting with the considerable power which food gave them. As a matter of fact, there were only two contingencies which might call for the exercise of that power. The Germans might refuse to carry out the terms of the armistice, but in that case, the armistice would at once come to an end, and therefore the provisions of Clause 8 would apply. Again, the preliminary terms of peace would shortly be presented to Germany, and if Germany refused to accept those terms, that would put an end to the armistice. But when that happened, the Allies would be quite entitled to decide not to advance into Germany and to exert the necessary pressure by the stoppage of food supplies. Consequently, the only two contingencies, when food pressure might be required, had been duly provided for. The conference was not, therefore, parting with any potent weapon. On the other hand, I wish to urge with all my might that steps should at once be taken to revictual Germany. The honour of the Allies is involved. Under the terms of the armistice, the Allies did imply that they meant to let food into Germany. The Germans had accepted our armistice conditions, which were sufficiently severe, and they had complied with the majority of these conditions. But, so far, not a single tonne of food had been sent into Germany. The fishing fleet had even been prevented from going out to catch a few herrings. The Allies were now on top, but the memories of starvation might one day turn against them. The Germans were being allowed to starve while at the same time hundreds of thousands of tons of food was lying at Rotterdam, waiting to be taken up the waterways into Germany. These incidents constituted far more formidable weapons for use against the Allies than any of the armaments it was sought to limit. The Allies were sowing hatred for the future. They were piling up agony, not for the Germans but for themselves. The British troops were indignant about our refusal to revictual Germany. Furthermore, British officers who had been in Germany said that Bolshevism was being created and that the determining factor was going to be food. As long as the people were starving, they would listen to the arguments of the Spartacists and the Allies, by their action, were simply encouraging elements of disruption and anarchism. 
It was like stirring up an influenza puddle just next door to oneself. The condition of Russia was well known, and it might be possible to look on at a muddle which had been there created. But now, if Germany went, and Spain went, who would feel safe? As long as order was maintained in Germany, a breakwater would exist between the countries of the Allies and the waters of revolution beyond. But once the breakwater was swept away, I cannot speak for France and tremble for my own country. The situation was particularly serious in Munich. Bavaria, which once had been thought to represent the most solid and conservative part of Germany, had already gone. I am here this afternoon to reinforce the appeal which had come to me from the men who had helped the Allies conquer the Germans, the soldiers who had said that they refused to continue to occupy a territory in order to maintain the population in a state of starvation. Meanwhile, the conference continues to haggle. Six weeks ago, the same arguments about gold and foreign securities had been raised, and it had been decided that Germany should be given food. I beg the conference to reaffirm that decision in the most unequivocal terms, unless this people were fed, if, as a result of a process of starvation enforced by the Allies, the people of Germany were allowed to run riot, a state of revolution among the working classes of all countries would ensue, with which it would be impossible to cope. It was a startling expression of precisely how differently the British Prime Minister and French Premier viewed the Germans and the world. Interestingly, Lloyd George was also confident here that the preliminary terms of peace would be presented to the Germans soon, and he wasn't alone, as House's diary extract show. These preliminary terms, which ended up being the final terms of the treaty, were in fact not presented to the Germans until the first week of May, so that should give us all an idea of how well this urgent appeal worked. Clemenceau urged against Lloyd George's interpretation of the situation, you'll be unsurprised to know. The French Premier insisted that the Allies had never promised explicitly the delivery of food, and thus their honour was not involved as Lloyd George had claimed. Furthermore, Clemenceau expressed the belief that the Germans were using the threat of Bolshevism as a bogey with which to frighten the Allies. If, Clemenceau claimed, the Germans were genuinely desperate and starving, then why did they remain defiant of the Allied wishes? This was a fair point. A desperate populace did not care very much for their fleet. But Clemenceau only served to paint himself as inflexible in British minds yet again, when he said, The Germans had promised to surrender their mercantile fleet, and immediate compliance must be demanded. It is essential that no signs of weakness should be displayed on the eve of the settlement of other large territorial, military and economic questions. The Germans must not be given any advantage today that might give them the impression that the Allied powers could be intimidated and made to yield. Therefore, in my opinion, Germany should be asked point-blank, are you or are you not going to execute the conditions set forth in Clause 8 of the Agreement for the Prolongation of the Armistice? If this proposal were accepted, the position of the great powers would be extremely strong and promises to supply food could then safely be made. But the French remained dissatisfied at additional suggestions which might imply eagerness on their part. The idea that Marshal Foch should lead another military delegation to Spa was met with incredulity by the French here, on the basis that the Germans had been met twice already and that they had agreed to hand over their merchant fleet following a 20-minute conversation with Foch a few weeks ago. The Germans, thus, needed to be met with determination and stiffness. They did not need to be met with another Allied delegation. Lloyd George was growing weary of the debate by this stage. 
An issue which was by no means the most important on the agenda was taking up far too much time. Thus, he made use of a letter sent to him by General Plummer, a British commander in place in Germany. Plummer's anecdotal evidence made for harrowing listening, as the letter said. Please inform the Prime Minister that in my opinion food must be sent into this area by the Allies without delay. Even now the present rations are insufficient to maintain life and owing to the failure of supplies from Germany they must very soon be still further reduced. The mortality amongst women, children and sick is most grave and sickness due to hunger is spreading. The attitude of the population is becoming one of despair and the people feel that an end by bullets is preferable to death by starvation. All this naturally results in great activity by subversive and disorderly elements. Apart from the imminence of danger from the situation, the continuance of these conditions is unjustifiable. I request, therefore, that a definite date be fixed for the arrival of the first supplies. This date should not be later than the 16th of March, even if, from that date, regular supplies cannot be maintained. On top of this, Lord George rolled out an extract for meetings held on what must have seemed like a world ago on the 13th of January, that is, the second day of the Supreme War Council meetings, which led up to the opening of the conference. Lloyd George's reasoning for going back in time in this manner was to demonstrate that, then, the French had agreed to a period of two months to decide upon the crux of the issue with respect to giving food to Germany. What the French had found so objectionable at that stage was the question of payment. Who was going to pay France for the food she supplied? They didn't want German money, because that money was needed for the repairing of France rather than paying for her food deliveries. But the money had to come from somewhere. The French finance minister had, on the 13th of January, effectively asked to let the issue simmer for two months. Six weeks later, Lloyd George said, nothing had apparently been done to fix the situation, and it was time the French stopped stonewalling in this regard, or Bolshevism would spread in Germany and the progress of the Allies would be greatly frustrated. It was a considerable warning, issued after a day of considerable activity, but it seemed to pave the way towards a solution. France was finally pacified in this respect by enshrining a commitment within the treaty to oblige the Germans to pay for their food with the money received from leasing their ships to the Allies, and that any differences will be made up by gold only as a very last resort. This compromise, though it was messy and awkward, it seemed to do the trick and the eventful day of the 8th of March was adjourned. Much had been learned over the past week. House called the 7th of March a stormy session, and in the evening of the 8th of March, he noted in his diary that The meeting at the Quai d'Orsay was a repetition of that of yesterday. Only France was in the position of Italy the day before. Yesterday on the 7th of March, the French saw quite clearly that the Italians were obstructing the sending of necessary food into the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, while today on the 8th of March, the Italians saw just as clearly that the French were trying to obstruct the sending of food into Germany. We sat for four hours before reaching a conclusion. Hours, indeed, and there were still several days left to fill before the American president returned to Paris. The next day on the 9th of March was a Sunday, and thus no council of ten meeting was held. House even described the 9th of March optimistically as a day which was not unusually trying, and in the sliding scale of good days or exhausting days, this was quite a change. Before we leave House and examine the Council of Ten meeting on the 10th of March, though, it's worth noting his comments on the reparation issue. That morning, at 10.30am on the 10th of March, 
House met with Clemenceau and Lloyd George, as he had done before in the Ministry of War, to work through some details and hopefully speed up the latter process. House couldn't help but record his negative impressions of the two Allied leaders in his diary, saying, Both Clemenceau and George say that they hoped a large sum would be agreed upon because of the political situations in England and France. I was amused and struck by the cynical way in which they discussed their people. Both of them practically confessed that they knew Germany could not pay anything like the sum which they had in mind to suggest, and that it was merely done to meet the expectations and desires of their constituents. Lloyd George declared that he had not purposefully misled the English people, but somehow, during the recent elections, there was a perfect groundswell for the Germans to pay for the cost of the war, and while he knew that it was an impossibility to realise such expectations, he followed, and was one of the most vociferous of the lot, in demanding that the cost of the war should be paid by Germany. If true, then these exclamations don't age particularly well. If he genuinely knew that Germany could not, and would not, accept such large bills from the Allies, then Lloyd George, as a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, don't forget, should certainly have avoided demanding such a high price, or promising his constituents that he would in the first place. This, of course, assumes that Lloyd George admitted all this, and it is worth remembering that House massaged the truth or avoided important aspects of the story in the past. Still, it's an interesting observation on how House viewed his Allied counterparts. Another interesting observation is House's repeatedly stated hope that the Allied leaders, essentially George Clemenceau, Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George, would meet regularly in person each morning, as he had done before each Council of Ten afternoon meeting, since this would remove the need for gathering together and surrounding themselves in protocols and procedures in the Council of Ten, as they did. Whether House was a fortune teller or not, his foresight is somewhat remarkable. Wilson would indeed come to prefer these cosier meetings of the big four Allied leaders, who gathered for their incredibly important, but still somewhat informal chats with increasing frequency from the last week of March, as part of the Council of Four. At the end of the 10th of March, after having attended the Council of Ten meeting for that day, House captured his frustrations with the Council of Ten, when he wrote that the meeting lasted much longer than it should have, because at meetings of that size, there are always several who desire to make speeches. This is a form of vanity in which those who speak well constantly indulge themselves. On the 10th of March, the Allies assembled for this aforementioned meeting, drawn out though it was, and immediately launched into the question of Germany's army in the aftermath of the war. The questions of what kind of army this would be, whether it would be volunteers or conscripts, how long they would serve, for one year or permanently, and how many would serve, between 100 to 250,000, all did the rounds. This question had actually been addressed several times already, and yes, it sounds familiar because we have looked at it already, and a decision had largely been reached. You'll remember that Foch was essentially overruled by Clemenceau and Lloyd George on this point. Evidently, though, it was felt appropriate to dig the question back up again. Interestingly, while we may expect the British to object to this where they had objected to repetition of discussions in the past, David Lloyd George was actually at his most patient and understanding at this point. He stated that Twice in living memory, invasion of French soil had come from the same quarter. France was therefore entitled to consider her fears. Germany would have no cause for complaint. Twice she had misused her military machine, and on this occasion its misuse had led to the death of 20 million young men. 
Consequent famine and disorder would doubtless do to death as many more. The associated powers were therefore entitled to say that they would not allow Germany the use of a machine that could again be the cause of a similar disaster. In conclusion, if France felt strongly about this question, I do not think that the British or American delegates had a right to withstand her views. While they were at it, the Allies decided to transform this Supreme War Council meeting into a complete examination of the draft military terms for Germany. These draft terms had been written up in previous days by a separate commission, and the Allies picked through each one in detail. Don't worry, we don't need to examine this process now, but suffice to say it absorbed the entire attentions of the whole meeting. The final terms which Germany's military would be forced to accept reads quite similarly to the terms enshrined within the Treaty of Versailles, and which have become so infamous since. The French were eager to ensure that the Germans had a small army, but also that this army lacked a coordinated general staff, something which ruffled quite a few feathers. Would Germany not possess a mob rather than an army if that was the case? Not so, insisted Foch, because the French lacked as extensive a general staff as Germany had boasted, but they did fine. And similarly, the Americans lacked such an institution on Germany's scale until their entry into the war. Evidently, the French wanted to keep Germany's military rudderless and weak, and they believed that by cutting off its head, the body would essentially flounder with no threat to France. The end result of this lobbying resulted in a limit being placed upon Germany. She would only be able to employ 6,000 officers and one Army Corps staff. The number settled upon the maximum size of Germany's army had also been reduced to further appeal to French concerns. The figure suggested was now 140,000 slightly more than the 100,000 that the Germans got in the end, but these were merely draft terms, as their name suggested. Pending approval from the Allies, these terms would be handed to Germany alongside the other preliminary terms, as part of the wider mission to reach a final peace. If the Allies thought that they were nearing the end of this process, though, they were very mistaken indeed. A legion of issues awaited attention, the next day on the 11th of March, as the Council of Ten gathered. The situation in Eastern Europe was especially relevant, as a plea was communicated by the Germans to the effect that the Poles should not be landed in Danzig, lest it would create a rupture in the German ability to defend its new regime. Germany, this alarming report claimed, was already fighting against the Bolsheviks in the Baltic. The letter, of course, neglected to mention that the Germans were only present in the Baltic because the Weimar government could not persuade the Freikorps to leave. Nevertheless, the Allies were eager to ensure that the Germans did not face impossible situations like a pincer movement from the newly emerging states of the East. To this, the French produced a letter from Edward Benesch, the Czech foreign minister, who reported to have personally intercepted letters regarding a plot that Germany intended to soon launch against the Czechs. Lloyd George was sceptical and said that the Allies would have to see these letters Benesch had before making any decisions themselves. Furthermore, Lloyd George emphasised that throughout the East it was known that different powers, including the Czechs, were preying upon the vulnerabilities of their neighbours. In an eerily prophetic statement, Lloyd George insisted that The new map of Europe must not be so drawn as to leave cause for disputations which would eventually drag Europe into a new war. Of course, as we know all too well, the very disruption which the Allied deliberations on a new world order in the East caused provided Hitler with an ideal opportunity to strike. Again, we must add to that tragedy that Hitler would have struck against Poland regardless, and a second war was inevitable the moment he came to power. 
It is important, indeed, not to be blinded by the circumstances of the Second World War and imagine that the Treaty of Versailles moved Hitler to strike. Hitler's inherent Hitlerness, for lack of a better term, that was what moved him to strike, and he would have done so even if the Allies had created some kind of harmonious utopia in the East. As Lloyd George certainly feared, though, this task of setting up a harmonious utopia in the East was far easier said than done. Next, Orlando and Sonino talked about the recent communications presented by Nikola Pesic. It was almost as though one could feel the Italian backs pressing up against the wall. Orlando was deeply concerned that the Allies would concede to Serbian requests. What were these requests? Well, they were the near-complete representation of Serbia in the conference, on the same level as Belgium. The reason why this was problematic was because Serbia was now attached to Croatia and Slovenia, and Italy regarded those latter two states as her enemies, being in the same side during the war as the Austro-Hungarians, and also being an ideal place for Italy to expand into. The eagle-eyed among the Allies would have translated these Italian protests for themselves. As I said, Slovenia and Croatia weren't just enemies of Italy, they also existed within the path of Italy's Balkan expansion plans and their being tied to Belgrade jeopardised these expansion plans. After talking some more about Italy's need to gain respect, Orlando pleaded that the matter be postponed for a few days so that he could consult his colleagues and build a more complete case for Italy in the region. Everyone present agreed, but it was unmistakable what had been confirmed. If France's bone of contention was Germany, then Italy's bone of contention was pretty much anything to do with Serbia. Before adjourning, the issues of Greece and Turkey were touched upon before the issue of Greece was abandoned to please Italy and the latter of Turkey was postponed until Wilson returned to Paris. The Allies were certainly very good at kicking cans down the road. In House's opinion, the 12th of March was a most interesting day and he added that Orlando called around 10 o'clock to confer upon the various phases of the Italian situation. He remained for nearly an hour. They seem to look upon me as their next friend. I foresee trouble for him because Lloyd George and Clemenceau are not sympathetic to their demands as the President and I, and we are nowhere near agreement with them. Those sneaky Italians were evidently trying to use more private channels to guarantee their interests, but the Italians were far from the only ones that tried to do this. Before the Council of Ten assembled in the afternoon of the 12th of March, House was subject to a cornering by Lloyd George, who talked privately with him in anteroom of the Quai d'Orsay for half an hour, and typically enough, House recorded the experience. Lloyd George said he was seriously troubled concerning the French. In the first place, he could not agree with them upon the question of the boundary of the Rhine and the creation of a Rhineish Republic upon the terms which they had in mind. He was willing to give them protection in other directions, for instance, England would build a tunnel which would put English troops in France within 48 hours without having the vicissitudes of the sea to contend with. He would also be willing to say that in the event of an invasion, the British would come at once to the rescue, but he was not willing to maintain an army indefinitely at the bridgeheads of the Rhine and to do the other things that the French desired, which we both agree will eventually lead to another war. He said that the financial question was another difficulty. He thought that the French were unfair. Another difficulty is Syria. Lloyd George declares that the French are making trouble for themselves and war is sure to come if they insist upon their present plans. Proclaiming British plans to create the Channel Tunnel 75 years too early, notwithstanding, Lloyd George's confessions here, again if they are true, 
say a great deal about what the British Prime Minister actually thought. What is really incredible about the 12th of March is that after already meeting with Vittorio Orlando and David Lloyd George and privately hearing their thoughts, it was time later that afternoon to hear the private thoughts of Georges Clemenceau. House did not let it be known while he was meeting with the French Premier that he'd already been confided in by everyone else, but maybe Clemenceau didn't care about that and he wished merely to express himself. House recorded this experience too, saying, Clemenceau was distressed at this turn. Matters were taking with the British. He said Lloyd George did not keep his promises, that in England he had promised him Syria, just as the French now desired. He said that he had broken his word as to the division of the sum to be obtained from Germany, and again he had broken his word in declining to even discuss the Rhenish Republic and the proper protection of France. I endeavoured to explain to Clemenceau that Lloyd George was not like the English in general, but he persistently misunderstood me and thought I was saying that all Englishmen were alike and could not be trusted to keep their word. As a matter of fact, I was saying the reverse. I soothed the old man by telling him that we would straighten it out in some way and not to worry. I made an appointment for the President, Clemenceau and Lloyd George, to meet here in my room at three on Friday and to cut out the Cador same meeting, which Clemenceau readily promised to do. I have a regular programme in mind which I outlined to Clemenceau and which he said was satisfactory to him. I thought it best not to have Orlando at all the meetings, but to let him come in only when the interests of the Italians were involved. Several things are worth taking from this extract. The first is the plan that House had to avoid any meeting of the Council of Ten on Friday, the 14th of March, the day that Wilson was expected to return home. This explains why the minutes don't record any meeting of the Council of Ten for that day. The Allied leaders had taken the opportunity to meet together, with the President meeting face-to-face with George Clemenceau, David Lloyd George and Vittorio Orlando, rather than host another time-wasting session of the Council of Ten. Second, if this account is accurate, then Clemenceau evidently had more than a bone to pick with Lloyd George, as the Prime Minister had with him. Both figures, while able to get on famously at times, were also professional enough to hide their differences, but differences certainly did exist, and these had the potential to cause great anxiety if all were not careful. Third, Orlando's relegation to only being invited when needed was a hint of things to come. Within the month, the Italian Premier would be excluded altogether. And never mind the Japanese, who House didn't even consider when suggesting this idea. In comparison to these high-level dealings and backroom antics, the actual discussion for the final day of the Council of Ten, under our examination in this episode, that is, on the 12th of March, seemed like something of a come-down. The first item on the agenda asked the Allies what should be done about the Hasburg Emperor Charles Joseph, who had been forced to abdicate, and was seeking British aid in leaving the country for Switzerland. What should be done about this? Well, in something of an understatement. The minutes record Lloyd George as saying, The Committee on Breaches of the Laws of War could be asked to report on whether the Emperor Charles could in any way be held responsible for the war. My information went to show that the Emperor was now being treated very badly in Austria, where the situation was daily more nearly approaching that of Russia. The Empress had also been treated somewhat brutally, and since the Emperor could in no way be held responsible for the war, it would be a pity if he were murdered. For that same reason, the Austrian government was rather anxious to get him away. Indeed, it would be a pity if the last Habsburg Emperor was murdered, but a dispossessed Emperor of a dead empire was not high on the list of Allied priorities at this point. 
Nonetheless, it was agreed by the Allies that the late uncle of the Emperor was to blame, that is, Franz Joseph rather than Charles Joseph, and that consequently Charles could travel to his Swiss exile without fear of interception or attack, so long as, of course, the Swiss approved. Clemenceau then moved the conversation onto Germany once again, but this time specifically focusing on the issue of Germany's air force. Surprise, surprise, the Allies decided that it would be great fun altogether to set up another commission on the matter, with the distinction being made between commercial or military flight therein when they were talking about Germany's air force. Two reps from each Allied power would sit on this commission. Next, it was pointed out that the Italians were upset that the Czechs were refusing to accept responsibility for the Habsburg debt. This was relegated to the Allied Financial Commission. Next, next, Poland's western borders were brought up, and it was said that this should all be postponed until Saturday the 15th of March. The meeting of the 12th of March at the Council of Ten then adjourned. House doesn't record a diary entry for Thursday the 13th of March, because he was so busy travelling up to meet Woodrow Wilson that day. Instead, he recorded the details of that trip on the 14th, and we will address them in the next episode, but... We're going to leave our coverage of the first two weeks of March 1919 there for now, history friends. The Council of Ten also neglected to record any minutes on the 13th of March too, which was likely a consequence of the stripped-back representation of the Americans. Perhaps due to the absence of House, the Council of Ten decided to refrain from meeting at all and to reassemble on Saturday the 15th of March once the President had returned. Either way, there was something of a two-day break for the Allied powers in Paris after two weeks of intense politicking and appeals. Those two days of the 13th and 14th of March, while they were quiet in the Council of Ten, they were, of course, not quiet altogether. In this city which never seemed to sleep, the occasion of the big four's Allied leaders coming together after a whole month apart was as significant as moments got in spring 1919. All involved seemed to be imbued with a new kind of energy, be that powered by desperation, suspicion, anxiety, optimism, jealousy or ambition, and all believed that the world would be created in their image in the next few months. It had been quite the journey, but by the 13th and 14th of March, the destination was still far from clear. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 